The New Testament was written in Greek, but were its authors actually working from a Hebrew original? Our guest today, Dr. Brad Young, has written numerous works exploring the possibility that Hebrew ideas and Hebrew vocabulary lie behind the Greek text, and that this Hebrew undertext is the key to understanding Jesus and the apostles. Messiah Podcast is brought to you by First Fruits of Zion, providing Messianic Jewish teaching for Christians and Jews. Put your hand in mine together. We will walk in harmony. Let me introduce you to my teacher, the rabbi from the Galilee. Welcome to Messiah Podcast, where Jesus is Jewish and that changes everything. I'm Damian Eisner, here with my illustrious colleague, Jacob Franzak. How are you, my friend? I'm doing fantastic. How are you doing today, Damian? I'm excited. Today we have uh, one of my one of my theological heroes, Dr. Brad Young, is going to be joining us. He is a founding member of the Jerusalem School of Synoptic Research, graduate of Hebrew University of Jerusalem, professor emeritus at Oral Roberts University. A lot of uh, this would be a long list, but here's a really important question, Jacob. Have you ever been to Tulsa to Oral Roberts University? You know, I've seen pictures of the campus, but um, no, I've never been to ORU, although I was in Tulsa once, now that you mention it. Um, I was for a martial arts tournament there, and I lost my first I lost my first match. I was knocked out in the first match. Um, I, I lost to a guy that was surprisingly like bigger than me, and I'm like 6'3", so I drove all the way to Tulsa to fight the only guy in Tulsa that was bigger than me, I guess, is probably what happened. Anyway. What was your highest uh, belt? The listeners need to know. Oh, I think I was like purple or something. I don't know. It seemed weird because they just kept like changing colors and I never got to the black. I think I just wanted more money. I don't know anything about martial arts, but I do know that I probably shouldn't mess with you if you have a purple belt because I only have a tan leather one. And, oh, I've got know. a few of those as well. Okay. I actually All consider right. those to be slightly more useful uh, in, in the long run. <laughs> but no, right. I, I've never been to RU. I have heard of Dr. Uh, Dr. Young. I think I used to have every single one of his books, but I'm pretty sure I've loaned some out um, to pastors and they haven't come back, which, you know, I mean, I'm fairly possessive of my books, but if uh, if one of them makes it into the hands of a pastor who's going to study it and learn from it and use it, then I'm, I'm I'm okay with that. Yeah, that's and and it's a general rule when you give a book away on loan, don't expect to see it again. I have a yeah. list of of books that I need to replace because I quote loan them to someone and they're never coming back. Yeah. Anyway. Dr. Young, as I was mentioning, he got his BA right there in Tulsa at ORU. And then he went to Hebrew University. The rest is history. He has, if, if, I, if we were on video, you'd see my stack of books that I'm holding up, which are in my library that I have not loaned. So they're still here. Jesus, the Jewish theologian, Paul, the Jewish theologian, meet the rabbis, the parables. Uh, many of you, our listeners, are probably familiar with much of Brad Young's work. And of course, he has a newly released Newer Testament, which we're going to talk about. But be, be clear, this is not a Third Testament. It's an English translation, which we're going to talk a lot about what that means of the New Testament. That is really more an attempt to reconstruct uh, the proposed Hebrew thought patterns and vocabulary behind the Greek text. 
And it is based on the assumption that all of the New Testament authors were thinking in Hebrew. And as I said, we've got a very exciting discussion and a lot more with Dr. Young just after the break. If you want to know the Jewish Jesus, don't miss out on a free subscription to Messiah Magazine, where you'll discover his life and teaching, learn about the biblical festivals, and get connected with Israel. Subscribe for free at messiahmagazine.org. Messiah Magazine is a free, donation-supported quarterly publication of First Fruits of Zion. Welcome, Dr. Brad Young. For Jacob and myself, this is uh, a true honor, kind of like kind of like meeting a rock star, uh, going backstage, a theological rock star. You, your work has been so influential for many of our, our uh, folks in the, in the Messianic world, but particularly for me, I mean, I remember early, early days as a Jewish believer which I had just sort of come to know who Yeshua was. And at that time, really what that meant for me was I, I was supposed to be now a formerly Jewish guy who believed in Jesus and started attending church. That's kind of what, what that had become. But as I was reading the New Testament and observing and maturing and seeing the unmistakable Jewishness of Jesus, uh, I, I started looking for teaching to help me understand just how Jewish Jesus really was, and all of a sudden, enter Dr. Brad Young's Jesus, the G- the the Jewish theologian. Jesus and his Jewish parables meet the rabbis. Paul, the Jewish theologian, just foundational stuff for my early journey that helped set me on this path. So, first off, just a huge thank you for a lifetime uh, devoted to the work that you have contributed to so many people. You have impacted my life in a big way. But um, I, I know that you have you yourself have been influenced and have been uh, run in the company of of some pretty heavy hitters yourself. Research assistant to David Flusser, founding scholar of the Jerusalem School of Synoptic Research, worked with Robert Lindsay, Shmuel Safrai, and I, I know we have a we have a very well educated audience, and so many people will be familiar with some of those names, but. Some, some people might not. They might not delve quite as deeply into the academic side. So uh, for those who don't read the footnotes, tell us first off, let's go way back, talk about the Jerusalem School. Uh, and for those who do actually read the footnotes, for the scholars among us, how does the Jerusalem School stand out in contrast to the rest of New Testament scholarship? You guys take some unique perspectives and, and what, what makes that unique? Damien, I'm so glad you're asking about the Jerusalem School because uh, it really emerged from this cooperation and work between Professor David Flusser, an Orthodox Jewish scholar who uh, was an authority on the Dead Sea Scrolls, devoted much of his time to the study of early Christianity. And then he started working with uh, Dr. Robert Lindsay. Here he was a Baptist pastor, Baptist scholar, both of them had been trained in classical Greek and uh, you really knew the, the Hellenistic Greek background, but both of them were studying in modern Hebrew together. And 
researching the linguistic background of the New Testament, we discovered uh, very early that uh, the words of Jesus go back to this Hebrew source that is, uh, we've got a lot of testimony about it in the uh, church uh, writings, the church leaders uh, like Bishop Papias of Hierapolis, who said that Matthew wrote the words of Jesus, probably the events in his life. Tologia can mean words. It can be events, the stories in the Hebrew language. And so here we've got Orthodox Jews with evangelical Christians studying the New Testament together in modern Hebrew in Israel. And, you know, I, I just, it kind of puts me back in, you know, the story of Eliezer Sukinik talking about when he went to purchase the Dead Sea Scrolls in Bethlehem. It was the eve of the United Nations vote to recognize Israel as a state. And he dressed up as a Bedouin in a disguise because it was dangerous. He went and bought the first seven of the Dead Sea Scrolls for the Hebrew University. And he opened and was reading the Isaiah Scroll in Hebrew as the UN vote was happening. Uh, Israel was recognized. People were joyful, dancing in the streets. And I just think about Israel as a place, Jerusalem as a place where things start coming together. We have these pivotal points in history. So to have Christians and Jews studying together the the foundational texts, both of Judaism and Christianity together in modern Hebrew, uh, learning from one another, showing esteem for one another, understanding one another. Uh, David Fluss was very good friends with Shmuel Safrai. And of course, David Biven uh, was living in Jerusalem, studying, working. So we had uh, seven members that came together uh, establishing the Jerusalem School of Synoptic Studies, which was really kind of an acknowledgement, a recognition of what was already happening, but it gave us a forum to publish, to discuss, to uh, share some of the results of this research. And, you know, it really was a foundation for the translation work that I wanted to do later. Uh, and to be honest, Damien, I didn't really want to translate the New Testament. It, it took me a while before I just felt like we needed this translation that would show the first century Jewish context and try to recreate the setting so that readers can hear as they heard. Right. But, you know, we had studied the, uh, the text in Greek in Professor Flusser's class, and, you know, he wouldn't let anybody take, you know, nobody would bring a modern Hebrew translation. You'd think since Hebrew was a language, you'd just study a, a current language, uh, Hebrew translation. No, we, we studied it in Greek, and then we'd say, how would this be in biblical Hebrew? How would this be in the Hebrew of the Dead Sea Scrolls or Mishnaic Hebrew? Wow. We were discovering linguistically the, the language um, culture of the first century and how to understand it and how, you know, a change in language makes a big difference. If you understand the words of Jesus in their context, it it helps you. So uh, I think that gives you a little bit of a flavor of the founding of the uh, Jerusalem School. Um, Just mentioned, of course, David Flusser, Shmuel Safrai, Bob Lindsay, David Bibbon, there's others, but so many contributed and and it became a, a network of scholars working together. Yeah, definitely. That that description of studying the Bible in the original language sort of sort of puts a new depth into understanding the context of it when you're when you're filtering it through all of the original languages and Mishnaic Hebrew and I mean that's 
if only all of us could do that, how would that remarkably change our understanding of things? Wouldn't that be awesome? Uh, so I'm, I'm sure that all of a sudden the ideas that were coming out of the Jerusalem school just were widely embraced and everyone came right along and said, wow, these guys are certainly right. Everyone <laughs> agreed with you, right? <laughs> well, you know, I've got to admit, sometimes I thought, well, you know, I'm editing this book for David Flusser. When it's published, it will change everything. Or even my earlier book, uh, Jesus and His Jewish Parables, but, uh, you know, people are kind of already entrenched in a certain mindset. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, the theory of mark and priority, which is where I started from with the Gospels when I came to Jerusalem and, you know, felt like there was a lot of uh, strong evidence to support the priority of Mark as being the first of the three synoptic Gospels being written. And, you know, when I started working with Flusser, seeing the uh, the Mark and Cross factor, we call it Mark and Cross factor, showing Mark as kind of the mediator between, uh, or the text that Luke and Matthew had in common. You know, I, I began to see, well, there's some evidence here that people haven't explained. So I, I can understand that it takes a little bit of time for people to reevaluate this. I think the church, uh, I would say for 2,000 years, the church has been teaching that the faith in Jesus cancels and replaces the faith of Jesus. And so in working in this translation, we've been trying to say, well, if we really understand the foundations of our faith, the faith in Jesus, his Jewish faith, his, his practice, his connection with his people, the land, the faith, that strengthens our faith in Jesus. And we really need to understand the faith of Jesus to fully embrace and understand the meaning of our faith in Jesus. Isn't that the same uh, construction in Greek? Isn't there a whole argument about that? Uh, the 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 faith of Jesus versus faith in Jesus, as far as translating that uh, genitive construction. That uh, who was it? Who was that scholar who wrote that whole thing about the 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 faith uh, of Jesus Christ, as, as far as translating those important Pauline passages? Yeah, James Dunn in his uh, classic commentary on the Book of Romans really uh, went in this where we have a subjective genitive or an objective genitive, faith in or faith of. And, uh, you know, that can uh, make a difference in the way we understand uh, uh, Romans and in the way we understand Galatians. Uh, I am crucified with the Messiah, with Christ. Uh, you know, do we have, nevertheless, I live the faith I live now, I live by the faith of Jesus, or is it the faith in Jesus? These are slight variations, but you know, I, I'm kind of using that phrase in a little different way, Jacob, because I'm, I'm kind of saying we've we've said the faith of Jesus. We haven't recognized when he said, I didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them, that mm. there's a sense that there is a foundation. So in our uh, Hebrew Heritage Bible, Newer Testament, we give it the name, the Newer Testament, to stress the aspect that uh, it's newer in the sense that it doesn't cancel the older, or right. you know, if we say Old Testament in our Christian terminology, I, I mean, I taught in ORU in a Christian seminary, and we wonderful school. You know, we had a, a program in Judaic Christian studies, and you know, sometimes I would say, can't we 
say Hebrew Bible instead of Old Testament or Older Testament. You know, that that also helps people understand. But, you know, that changing terminology like that is very difficult after so many years of uh, church history. But I think if we say that the Newer Testament, it's connected with the platform of the Tanakh, the Older Testament. Older is vintage. Older is authentic. Older helps you understand the newer. So you see more of an interconnection between them rather than the idea of old is obsolete, put right. aside. So we're seeing that interconnection between the Britot, uh, mm. the covenants in the scriptures, right. all the covenants. Definitely. Yeah, when I was growing up, I remember listening to a guy out of Coeur d'Alene who said, um, you can you can actually tear one page out of your Bible and it's the page in between the Old and New Testaments. Get rid of that one because it's, <laughs> it's just... There's, you shouldn't divide them up like that. You, you have to be able to see the connections between them. Um, I want to. We, we are going to talk about that Newer Testament. I have several questions, and Damien has some questions about the Newer Testament. So I wanted to back up a little bit because um, I wanted to 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 understand how you got on this journey. Because I went and looked at a list of ORU graduates, and I was not able to find evidence of a really big pipeline from ORU to uh, the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. It seemed like sort of a unique journey that you went on. And I wondered sort of what um, what drew you to the Hebrew language or to Israel or to the, Jew uh, the Jewish people? And like, how did you originally get connected with um, all these other guys in the Jerusalem school? Uh well, it's, it's interesting, uh, you know, my, that my grandfather uh, on my mother's side was very interested in Israel. He was a pharmacist. He was a businessman. Uh, but he, in 1936, he went to Israel for like months and he traveled with a Jewish rabbi from Cairo to Damascus on the old Ottoman trains. Wow. Wow. And, and when I was young, I was involved in a coffeehouse ministry, and uh, we were uh, very much involved in the Christian and our faith and sharing in recovery, some Alcoholics Anonymous, drug uh, addicts, things like that. And my grandfather sent me to Israel in 1972. Well, wow. when I went to Israel, you know, I had a deep faith and a deep commitment. I realized that this is the place where I would find the answer to many questions I had about the scriptures that I, were, I was not receiving answers in other places. And I realized Jesus was Jewish. You don't have to understand him in the original context. We have removed Jesus from his family. And mm -hmm. so uh, I studied for a summer in Israel then, and then I did a junior year abroad. Then I did went to Israel. I, I met Bob Lindsay. I realized how important it was to study with someone like Professor David Flusser. And I read all of his books, read everything I could read about Jewish scholars who were sharing us insights about the life and teachings of Yeshua. And so mm. uh, studying with Flusser and Lindsay, I went ahead and did my master's degree. And, and I was very interested in parables. At the time, we were studying the parables uh, in Tana Debele Yahu, this uh, wonderful a book. It's an ethical midrash, sometimes called Seder Eliyahu, the Order of Elijah. And it's rich in parables. Uh, yeah. And we were studying these with Professor Safrai and, and Professor Flusser on Sunday nights. And so I started making notebooks of these parables. The book hadn't been translated into English at that time. And I was just loving the Hebrew uh, of this. It has a, a distinctive Hebrew 
um, linguistic uh, approach uh, when you're reading the text, uh, beautiful Hebrew. And uh, I could see the connection with some of the parables of Jesus. So that began kind of my parable research with my doctorate, my master's, my doctorate, my first book on parables, and then later wrote this other book on parables that took the method we were developing with the Jerusalem School and then applied it to all of the parables of Jesus. And I don't know, I think when you hear the stories of Agadah, I love a story with the message, a story that challenges you to make a decision, the right decision. And Yeshua was a master at making these stories, uh, giving you a drama. And, and it's all based on what we see in many of the rabbinic parables, very right. uh, similar. So when we study them together, we learn both and understand their message more clearly. And, and it helps us to study the Jewish text and, and the uh, Newer Testament together very much, Damien. I, uh, to me, that's just been a great journey to uh, see how my grandfather kind of got me started because originally I wasn't that interested in it. But after I went to Israel, it just changed everything. I think for a lot of people, going to Israel can be transformative. Absolutely. And I just encourage everyone to go to Israel, try to uh, get connected with the roots of our faith. Wow. What a, what a story. I had no idea that it was 1972. That, that really puts me in my place. You've been doing this since I was born in 1972. So, uh, helps me know the, the level of expertise I'm talking with here. <laughs> and we, we are going to talk uh, a good bit, as Jacob mentioned about context language, but I want to ask you a specific question about Hebrew because, uh, there, there is, there is like everything debate among what what language, you know, was Jesus actually speaking, and and I think that your position and the Jerusalem School and and all of those influential teachers is Jesus speaking Hebrew, um, and and again, there's some diversity of opinion there. Many people, I think, put Aramaic at the top of the list as the lingua franca. Even the Torah, you know, through the Targums, were translating into Aramaic, reading alongside the Hebrew in the synagogue so people could understand it. So I would love for you to share with the Messiah podcast audience, uh, where do you, what's the basis? Where, where do you, what, share some evidence that you have found that the original words of Jesus, the original story of Yeshua was all told in Hebrew. You mentioned Papias and, and Matthew and the Logia and all those things. Why Hebrew more than Aramaic? Well, it's so wonderful to talk to the Messiah podcast because so many have been studying this and they're interested in the language and many have some knowledge of, of Hebrew and many have, have studied Greek and Hebrew. Uh, uh, you have, uh, you know, basis for this, um, many scholars are convinced that the lingua franca of the time was Aramaic. Uh, I'm more of the opinion, I think, if we look at the inscriptional evidence and, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the total picture, that there was there was probably a multilingual environment. You know, we mm -hmm. see evidence of more than one language. But one thing I think that emerges from our study of the Dead Sea Scrolls is that if you were going to write a faith text, a religious text, the language for that is Hebrew. Uh, you would, uh, the Temple Scroll, one of the most important religious documents for the Dead Sea community, of course, is written in Hebrew. We also have what we call Mixat Masay Torah, a 
summary of the teachings of the Torah, MMT, sometimes it's, it's used, oh, yeah. uh, which was a letter written by, we believe, there, there's much discussion about this, but it seems mm -hmm. like maybe the founder or one of the major leaders of the Dead Sea community, which most scholars are seen as the Essenes to maybe the leader of the Pharisees, but it's written in what we call more of a Mishnaic Hebrew, later biblical Hebrew, uh, kind of stylized later Hebrew. And so I think, uh, as David Fusser used to say in his classes, even if Jesus spoke Aramaic, they would have written the Gospels in Hebrew. Right. I think because of the scrolls um, and you know, a lot of other evidence that Hebrew was a living language for some people, mm -hmm. uh, Chaim Rabin felt like probably in Judea, uh, Hebrew would have been more widely spoken even during the time of the Hasmoneans, the, the Maccabees, that there was a renewal of Hebrew. Uh, some people feel like if they... Jewish people are in exile for a short time, they would have forgotten Hebrew and started speaking Aramaic. I think that's not accurate. You know, we find yeah. many times that people in, in exile continue to speak their mother language, especially when they're not integrated into the society. And it's the language of prayers. It's the language of the Torah. All of the rabbinic parables are in Hebrew. Moshe Siegel a long time ago noticed that when you have an Aramaic text in the Talmud, when it comes to a parable, it changes to Hebrew. And then after the parable, it changes back to Aramaic. And so uh, I've uh, written about this on, you know, some of the evidence. But, you know, one Hebrewism that really has meant a lot to me, kind of discovering it, what I would say the Mishnah Hebrew is the phrase in the parable of the prodigal son, I think it would be better to call it the parable of the compassionate father and the two lost sons. That yeah. uh, the first son who was lost ran away, uh, sold everything, told his father, dropped dead. He goes into a foreign land. When he, it says he came to himself, and it uses this phrase in, in Greek where he's coming to himself. Many people have struggled with that. And I think when I was studying rabbinic parables, very similar to this, you come to the uh, Hebrew phrase, which is more in, you know, the later biblical, the, the later Mishnaic Hebrew rather than biblical Hebrew, but chazar bacha, to come to yourself, la chazor bacha literally is to repent. And so when he comes to himself, he says, I will arise and go to my father. Well, the perfect picture of repentance in, in Hebrew is the idea of going home, going back home to your father. Of course, the earthly father, we honor our parents in a sense in the way that we learn to honor our father who is in heaven. So uh, I, I think there are several idioms like that. Now, Hebrew and Aramaic are similar, right. and uh, you could um, translate the Gospels into Aramaic or Hebrew. I, I would say a lot of the things we say about Hebrew would be true of Aramaic, but there are some things. Randy Booth, a very fine scholar of the Jerusalem School, has written some articles about this where he talks about some aspects where, you know, this could only be in Hebrew and not Aramaic. I think there are also some things like that. One, one good example that Gabriel Grossman, uh, we were talking about this one time, uh, another fine scholar in Jerusalem. He wasn't a part of the Jerusalem school, but I was working with him on some Bible research. Uh, but he commented, Think of the example of where uh, the Gospel of Matthew says his name shall be called Yeshua, 
for he will save Yoshia, his people from their sins. Mm-hmm. Well, there, the three-letter root is Yod Shin Ein from salvation, Yeshua, Yeshua, salvation, and uh, the verb. But in Aramaic, you would use a different verb. You know, they would not use the, they didn't use uh, Yod Shin Ein. Uh, Gabriel Grossman talked about, well, they might have used Shabak or Parak, but, uh, you know, the idiom sounds better in Hebrew. I think the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, Avinu Sheba Shemaim, which I did a Hebrew reconstruction of uh, from the Greek text. Again, this is something I think that is better in Hebrew. We have one prayer in the Sidor today that's in Aramaic, and that's the um, Kaddish, which has similarities with the Lord's Prayer. What right. most people don't realize, uh, Safrai pointed this out, is that we have Hebrew versions of this in the rabbinic literature, like in the tractate Sofrim. And many scholars feel like that this prayer was originally re- said and prayed in Hebrew, but as this was a prayer for the morning and other reasons, uh, as Aramaic became more prevalent in the Jewish community, uh, for instance, we have the Aramaic Targums of the scriptures, which, uh, you know, were these used in the land of Israel as much as they were in, you know, Babylon? I mean, we have a very large Jewish community in Babylon. Not right. everybody returned to Israel, and their their language was Aramaic. So you, you kind of have those distinctions. But I, I'm sorry, Damien, my, my incredibly awesome watch show says, when somebody asks you a question, say yes or no. You know, you ask a professor a question and he just goes on and on giving you lectures. So just say time off. Not on this podcast. We want, we want you to go on and on. You know, when you're talking about this, this linguistic questions, you have to go into a little bit more detail. Absolutely. <laughs> no, we and, love it. And I'm learning. So. This is what the people want. This is what, this is what people come to Messiah podcast for. They want, they want to know the real stuff. They want to dig a little bit deeper. Um, Talking about Hebrew, talking about Hebrew, it um, makes me think about Robert Lindsay's idea, um, the, what the Jerusalem School maybe is most famous for, I'm not sure, um, just outside of our little circle, would be this idea that uh, of Lucan priority, right? Yes. Uh, which I'm not sure everyone in the, uh, shares in that, in that group, but certainly uh, it puts Jerusalem School on the map because it's a sort of a unique idea. But his process, Dr. Lindsay's process of, of arriving at that idea was to consider that, that Luke seemed closer um, to a proposed Hebrew original biography. Um, a sort of a lost Hebrew gospel that you talked about in reference to uh, Papias references it. Um, and all that to ask, um, I read a book not too long ago by um, Isaac Oliver, Torah Praxis, uh, after 70 CE, which I thought was really interesting because he makes an argument, and I think he references Gervell, who made a similar argument, that Luke, famously the only Gentile who got to write a book of the Bible, he makes the argument that actually Luke was also a Jewish believer. And I wondered if you had encountered this idea and what you thought about it, because it's not the it's not the same as Dr. Lindsay's argument, which is based more on the, the Hebrew language, the linguistic evidence. But do you think that this that, that can can we say is it's possible that maybe no Gentiles <laughs> wrote any books of the Bible? Do do we lose? Because I'm not Jewish. Do we lose our only guy in there? Is Luke is Luke Jewish? What's your opinion about that? Uh, this is such a great question, Jacob. And and I would say, like we say in Hebrew sometimes, 
Rav Shikvati. I mean, it's, it's multi-layered, I, I guess is a good way to say it. Mm. Um, one layer is we have church tradition that, you know, it's not Bible. We, we don't know how accurate it is, but it, it does talk about Luke as being non-Jewish and he emphasized the work of the Holy Spirit. And, and I think that's important part of evidence to acknowledge when you're talking about this. On the other side, we do have the word uh, Theophilus, for instance, uh, used in Hebrew and Greek, Yedidyah. And uh, he's, he writes this to the most excellent Theophilus. We also have a, a tomb inscription or a, an ossuary inscription where Theophilus is written in Hebrew letters from Greek. And so, you know, is this a non-Jew writing to a Jew? Uh, the Apostle Paul also mentions a Lucius. It's usually tra translated, but Lucius is the same as, as Greek, who he says, uh, I translated it Jewish like me. He's a Sungenus. He's a, a fellow countryman. Mm. Um, so there are some people who say, well, if this was the beloved physician, maybe uh, that's evidence that he was Jewish. Another layer on this, Jacob, I think, is the fact that whether he was Jewish or non-Jewish, he says, I have gone to those who have written about this. He talks about writing with their hands. I have talked to eyewitnesses. Hmm. I mean, if he's a non-Jewish, let's say a Times reporter, you know, or working with the Associated Press, he is going to Jewish sources. Yeah. And his gospel is representing this earlier, what when we talk about uh, source criticism, mm -hmm. um, uh, we're seeing a evidence of a Jewish text. Recently, James Edwards wrote the book, The Hebrew Gospel. And I think he discussed 13 patristic witnesses to a Hebrew text. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so many people say, well, if it says Hebraeus, Hebraeus means Aramaic. But, you know, the, the Greeks had a word. For Aramaic, Suristi, like, you know, Syriac or Aramaic. And I think there is strong evidence to say, well, when they're talking about Hebrew, they're talking about Hebrew. When they're talking about Aramaic, they're talking about Aramaic. But there are some Aramaic loan words and Hebrew loan words both ways. We have Hebrew loan words in Greek as well, you know, mm. so, so it is uh, uh, multi layered. But uh, I think you could make a case that uh, Luke was Jewish and uh, or, you know, if at least we do know he's using Jewish sources. So I think his gospel is essentially Jewish. And we find many Semitisms in the gospels. That was the first thing that Lindsay saw. He was working with the theory that Mark was first. Yeah. And he translated the gospel of Mark from Greek into Hebrew. Not very many people have done that. But as he was doing that, he discovered that Luke many times had a more Semitic wording than Mark. And so he had been taught that Luke, as a non-Jew, was changing Mark's text. The more original would be closer to the Semitic background and to Greek. And his linguistic research, I think, proved that wrong. And working with David Flusser, he convinced Flusser. But that was the first little bit of evidence. There, there's a lot more evidence with the Luke and priority idea besides that. Mm. I wrote about it a lot in Jesus and his Jewish parables and my early book on the parables. Uh, and we have a lot of really good articles on the Jerusalem perspective and online today that are easily accessed for people. And 
uh, some of Lindsay's theory that would help you kind of understand that evidence more clearly. All the references that you're giving, Dr. Young, again, to, just to brag on our audience a bit, I know that there'll be <laughs> many people will be writing these down and going and looking up these things. So you might get some emails from the Messiah podcast audience. Hey, you mentioned on the podcast, so just be prepared for that. Oh, that's but, wonderful. Brad Young at bradyoung.org. It's easy to find me these days. <laughs> oh, my goodness. There you go, guys. There is an open invitation. Uh-oh. <laughs> I've got it written down. Sign up to become an FFOZ friend today at ffoz.org slash friends and join First Fruits of Zion to restore the authentic faith and message of the Jewish Jesus. Centuries of misunderstanding about the Torah, the Jewish people, and the Jewishness of the New Testament obscured the real good news message of the kingdom. Today, a prophetic resurgence of faith is breaking out, and FFOZ friends are at the forefront of this restoration. Become a friend today at ffoz.org slash friends. We've mentioned the Newer Testament. Just just this tiny little project you decided to take on, like, you know, 30 <laughs> years in the making or something. You, you said, I didn't really want to do a New Testament translation. Um, and I can understand why. that There are a lot of them. Uh, but you are bringing a unique perspective, as we've already been discussing, on Hebrew thought and wording underpinning the Greek te- underpinning the Greek text. But you know, I'll ask this: What do you? I, I I think I know why you did it. But what are you expecting this newer testament to accomplish? What was the thing that finally said, Brad, you've got to do this, and you picked up your pen and got busy? Well, I, I really hope that. Uh, readers can rediscover the environment, the setting, uh, so that they will understand the New Testament in the first century Jewish context, because that opens up so many dimensions. You know, we have a change of audience when we're reading the New Testament. I I mean, uh, you know, when we read, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, and everybody says, well, those scribes and Pharisees, they're all hypocrites. We're so much better than them. You're just completely right. off the hook. Yeah. But how did the first century readers hear that? We translate Pharisees as spiritual leaders. Because in English, the word Pharisee means hypocrite. And so no one can read the Bible with proper understanding of the first century context. But when you say, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the spiritual leaders, well, then you're, you're kind of feeling like, well, who are our spiritual leaders? Do we have hypocrites among our spiritual leaders? I mean, Jesus criticized the hypocrisy of some Pharisees on the one hand. On the other hand, he said the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, do what they say. That part we have not learned in our uh, traditional teachings many times. And so I would say that lays a foundation for this replacement theology idea, whether we want to call it supersessionism, triumphalism, or now people kind of cloak it in this idea of fulfillment theology. But mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it, you're saying that Jesus uh, undermined the teachings of Torah and the prophets, prophets instead of upholding them through a proper interpretation. So we have to see how the Jewish people were interpreting. What did the scribes and Pharisees say about that at the time? So uh, 
I always felt like, well, if the Jewish roots movement had its own translation, it would sound like too much like a religious cult. And so I've tried to make it very clear that we're not a cult saying I've got the only translation. I think every translation should be judged by its goals. And, you know, there's very good and many translations. We have very good translations of the Bible. But we have a specific goal that is very different from these other translations, and that is to understand the Jewish context. Most translations just go from Greek to English, trying to find an easy-to-understand English translation. Many times that's the emphasis, or even reading for a specific denomination or a specific uh, group in mind. Our goal is different. We have an intermediate step. We have three steps. We go from Greek into the Hebrew or the Jewish context. How was this understood in the first century? And then we try to give it what we call a functional equivalency, a Hebrew literal functional equivalency, where we're giving more of the literal meaning of the Hebrew Jewish background, but with a functional equivalency so that you will understand it. Uh, An example I like is one probably many are familiar with, where you say, if your eye is good, your body is full of light. And I think the ESV said, if your eye is healthy, I mean, that's a legitimate translation of hoplos. It's a little different from agathos, but it's really the good eye. Well, in in Hebrew, the good eye means somebody that's generous. Mm -hmm. So we say, if your eye is good, square brackets, showing generosity so that as you're reading the text with the square brackets, you're going to understand exactly the Jewish context and the meaning. If your eye is evil, um, uh, uncovering a stingy temperament, you know, well, then again, you're getting a little bit more of the idiom. But, you know, if we're adding something, we put it in square brackets. Got it. Yeah, I noticed that yeah. all throughout. I think there's something to be said, though, putting that right there in the text, putting the the meaning of the idiom right there in the text, because that is how people would have heard it in that time. In the, and I guess the only other option, and what a lot of translations do, is to do something that's sort of rigidly literal, um, and then like to hide the the information if it's there at all in like a footnote or something, um, which is, well, I mean, why add the extra step, right? Why, why go to that level just to keep that level of, of literalness in, in the plain text? I mean, it's great if, uh, if you know your stuff, but if you don't, it sort of leaves you hanging. I did notice, however, uh, something kind of interesting about your explanation there, which is that you used the word we instead of I, because I was looking at the cover of this Newer Testament, and it says um, an English translation, etc., by by Brad H. Young, and it reminded me of something that happened when I was um, 16 years old, and I was a freshman in college. It was 2002, and I was um, I was at the Barnes and Noble at the Leighton Hills Mall in Ogden, Utah. Shout us out in the comments of, to this podcast if you've ever been to the Leighton Hills Mall in Ogden, Utah. And I was there with my buddy, um, my, my Korean buddy from LA, and I saw, it had just come out, and I'd never seen anything like this before. I saw, we were in the Bible translation section, and I saw the message. And if you looked at the bottom of the cover, it said, Eugene H. Peterson. It had a, a person's name. It had an author. Uh, the Bible had an author now that wasn't God. <laughs> and I looked. I looked at my friend, and I was like, "This guy thinks he wrote the Bible, right? Like, how could how could you how could you get a, a translation by like one guy? I mean, I I knew that human beings always were translating the Bible, but you know, when you get to like an NASB or an ESV or something, you, there's sort of the comfort in the the 
decision by committee in the sense that um, everyone's sort of checking each other's work. Anyone has a really wild idea, they'll get voted down or something, you know, controversial or, or more ambiguous passages. You get this sort of uh, crowdsourced uh, answers to these questions. So what would you say to people who, who say, well, Brad Young is obviously a genius. He's been doing this for a long time, but can he, can he do a Bible translation all by himself? But I noticed you said we a lot. Were there some other people involved in the project or, or what was your process like? Yes. Uh, and I, I want to say, I, I, if there's something bad, probably it's me. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I'll take full authority for anything that you feel like is bad. I think, and that's one thing you think about when you do a translation. You can translate the whole everything right, and you make one little mistake. Well, everybody will just talk about this, and you know, it's a very humbling experience translating uh, because uh, you know when you're a translator, you know some things. I mean, there are some texts that I've just Oh, you know, I'm just so this is so wonderful. Good, you know. And then there's other texts that, you know, it, it's it's uh, something that you're struggling with, or you know, analyzing various manuscript readings. You know, I, I would say probably in this translation we have uh, used a method of analyzing the the Greek manuscripts that gave greater emphasis on texts that show semitisms or the Jewish context, which isn't generally, I mean, you know, people who deal, deal with textual criticism and uh, say this is something they're concerned with, but really they don't take value it that much. So we're valuing that more. And so you're going to find some, uh, on some occasions, I mean, there there will be some variant readings that um, might surprise you that maybe you didn't know that was in a Greek manuscript somewhere because uh, it's not going to be in the current Bible. So and I made a decision sometimes, uh, not always in agreement with everybody that's involved in this. But we had a list of about 140 people for a while that we were sending it out to. And uh, we were getting response from them. Some of them knew uh, Hebrew. I've had different people read it. Uh, I've had some excellent students who very knowledgeable in Greek and Hebrew and other scholars, different parts of them. So it has been a group effort. But it is my, my translation. And uh, making the final decisions on a lot of aspects of the translation and discussions that we've had, but it, it was very much a group effort. Mm-hmm. I like to stress the translation side of it rather than my name. You know, I, I we have a website, the Hebrew Heritage Bible, uh, and we want to emphasize the word. This is a translation. Uh, it can be compared with other translations. Uh, other scholars can look at the Greek and Hebrew. The best is for us all to know Greek or Hebrew. But yeah. it is, um, you know, I'm responsible for it. But I don't really like to stress my own name so much. I, I know with our uh, Gospel Research Foundation work, it seemed like people couldn't remember Gospel Research Foundation or Hebrew Heritage Bible Society was so long to it. So finally, I, I would say a little bit of pressure from people I'm working with. Just have a website with Brad Young. Everybody remembers Brad Young. So I have a Brad Young website, and I have a Hebrew Heritage Bible. So Hebrew Heritage Bible is stressing the Bible, and I don't want my name out there so much. But you can go over to Brad Young, and most people go to Brad Young, and then they wind up at Hebrew Heritage Bible. But but uh, you could find me, and, and I fully accept, uh, you know, the accountability on the translation. And this is something we, you know, I remember Marvin Wilson was saying with the international version, they were trying to upgrade it uh, every five years. 
I was looking at the New American Standard Bible, which is a great translation, but I think they had like 20,000 plus little changes, sometimes a comma or something. But, you know, it, it is a constant process that you're learning more. And uh, I really value uh, insights of scholars and we're trying to learn, learn as much as we can about this. But I feel like that where we are right now is very good and uh, people will be able to, you know, really kind of get into that Jewish mindset. Uh, one thing, Damien, I think it was interesting to me, and I think you, Jacob would agree, but I, I had a, a Jewish um, friend who was a survivor of the Holocaust, and he was really interested in this aspect of maybe some anti-Jewish sentiments that's in some of the New Testament. I had him read this and give me some background. And one thing that he said to me, uh, he said, uh, you know, you should say that Pilate was a Roman. And at the time I was thinking, well, you know, you can't really just add a word, you know, but then I thought, well, you know, sometimes you do put something in square brackets. That's what we do, that it's not actually in the text, but might be misunderstood. I was kind of struggling with this. And, you know, the very next day, I had a call from a pastor who's taken many groups to Israel, was seminary trained. And in the course of that conversation, he said to me on the phone, he said, Dr. Young, I just found out that Pilate was not a Jew. I thought all this time he was Jewish. Wow. And just to have, you know, there's several little things like this have happened in the process of this translation that I thought, well, this is needed because first century readers, you know, they're, when they're writing the New Testament, they're, they are doing it with the Pax Romana, you know, the Roman oh. peace by the edge of the sword. And Correct. there's a sensitivity not to portray Romans in a strictly negative sense. But uh, you see, I think even, you know, a little sharper negative sense in the Gospel of John, which is probably written a little bit later. But at any rate, you know, I, I felt like that was a good addition to say Roman governor in square brackets for Pilate. That's such an interesting point that you just made. I, I was recently really digging into that uh, about the the Roman sensitivity within the writing of the New Testament. I mean, is that a real thing that, you know, we had we had Fiscus Judaicus and all this stuff that's going on in Rome and 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 would you agree that there were some necessary precautions taken in some of the wording of the New Testament to keep Rome from getting angry? This is a totally random question, but I'm just curious about it. Uh, I know when you raise an issue like that, some people will say, you know, well, they're writing under the inspiration of the Holy right. Spirit. And right. They're writing the Word of God, and they had no thought of the— right political ramifications. And I would say, well, if you're writing, being guided by the Spirit, you're probably going to be guided to deal with some of those political ramifications because you don't want to bring a necessary persecution to the church. As long as the early movement of Yeshua was connected with its Jewish roots, which I think probably went on much longer than some historians have allowed, mm -hmm. uh, they were protected somewhat from persecution. Um, and so uh, I think there was a desire to maybe not emphasize the role of Roman soldiers uh, in the crucifixion of G Yeshua, which I think the original audience clearly recognized, or right. uh, Pilate as being a Roman 
procurator. Uh, we know in, from the Greek and from the Latin inscription found at Caesarea that he was called a prefectus, a prefect. Probably, I mean, a governor is probably a good enough uh, translation, but he was more of the governor over all of Judea that, and had great power, but he was uh, a cruel, brutal individual that we see from Philo of Alexandria and many other sources, Josephus. But sometimes in the church literature, he's even thought to be a saint or right. you know, he was trying yeah. to save Jesus from the Jews. And, yeah. and really, uh, he's working with certain Jewish leaders. I think we would say the Sadducees primarily of the uh, temple order leadership. But I think we see the Pharisees being supportive of Jesus. I, I mean, one thing I think is really clear from the book of Acts is that the leader of the Pharisees, Gamaliel, Gamaliel, some people pronounce his name, but Gamaliel, we would say in Hebrew, he saved the apostles. Right. That's something you'll never hear in church. It's kind of obvious to me here. He's the leader of the Pharisees and he's saying, well, if we persecute this movement, what if it's of God? We, we've got to let the apostles go, the, yeah. the leaders. And yet uh, we have this one view of the Pharisees of, as the enemies of, of sure. Yeshua sure. rather than seeing this greater uh, diversity. You know, there, people had different views. Uh, but one, one aspect of all this, I think, is that there's been this tendency, and I think this, this is stronger in church tradition, to say, well, Rome had nothing to do with it. Rome was good. Um, and yet, you know, we, we know from his history, you know, it's much more complicated. The Gospel of John, I think, is very strong on this point in the sense that it says the Romans will come and destroy this place in, in John chapter 11. Mm -hmm. And it may be that already at this time there is more persecution and just really laying it out there what was really going on, that yeah. Rome was uh, disposed against the Jewish people, a lot of anti-Semitism in some of these Greek and Roman writings, as uh, Stern pointed out in his classic three-volume set, and we've got other things that show us this information. So the, the being led by the Holy Spirit, they're writing in a way that would communicate to the time and enable them to share the good news of the proclamation of the Mahut Shemaim. Incredible. And I appreciate that. The, the historical relevance of, you know, what was going on. I, I appreciate the way you said that, that the Holy Spirit, it, the Holy Spirit is pretty smart. So it would probably help you write in a way that was not going to get you killed instantly and might help your audience you know, develop a bigger audience. So I appreciated that. Let me jump back to the um, to the Newer Testament, and and just a, a quick tour uh, of your your manuscript selection because I noticed that you didn't necessarily stick with the with the the critical text, the Nestle Alan for for those of us for those of our listeners who don't know that the the Greek text of the Nestle Alan is is favored by most Bible translators because it takes all these uh, Greek texts from thousands of manuscripts and picks like what the, the most likely, the, the best fit, so to speak. But you didn't do that. You took some variant readings. You, I think, 
obviously took them for very specific reasons because you feel that they reflected the the Hebrew undertext much better. And I think the the greatest example or a very stark example of that would be the the Great Commission, uh, particularly the Matthew version. Go therefore, in most English Bibles, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. It's like the most famous text in all of the of the of the Gospels. But yours reads differently. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations in my name. So we see a glaring omission of the Trinitarian formula there. And um, Eusebius plays a role in that. Eusebius has a shorter version of the baptismal formula, and it's it's a variant that's not not attested in Greek manuscripts. But um, you know. I guess the hypothesis that Eusebius had access to the variant, we don't, and that's possible. But you made a bo- very, very bold choice. Mark Twain says, don't use the word very, but this was a very, very bold choice. Uh, tell us, first of all, the boldness. Can you tell us about the process that you went through to arrive at that decision? Um and, and are there other textual variants out there that you can remember that do a better job reflecting the Hebrew thought or Hebrew vocabulary than the sort of favored Nestle Alant? Yes, uh, th- this is a really wonderful question. And, uh, and I would maybe kind of clarify it a little bit because what we did uh, in the uh, translation is we actually give you both text in the text, you know, the longer and the shorter. And uh, I personally felt like the shorter without the Trinitarian formula is the preferred reading in this c- case mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, in the Jewish context, uh we're commanded to raise up disciples, Lakim Talmidim, you know, Larbot uh, Talmidim, very often. And uh, Yeshua was making disciples in the kingdom. And what we saw in the quotations of this text in the patristic literature is that before the Council of Nicaea, uh, where, you know, the Trinitarian formula became more prominent in right. the discussion of how we understood the nature of. Yeshua, you know, the and the relationship to the Father and the Spirit. Uh, this Trinitarian formula is missing. Mm-hmm. But in the later uh, text, uh, we find that it, it is in there. And Eusebius is a very clear witness to this. Now, uh, Hans Kosmala wrote a very important, serious uh, article about this. And David Flusser, my teacher, also wrote about this. So uh, I think there was a lot of discussion about this. But uh, if you just analyze the what we call the maybe the pedigree of the manuscripts, where they come from, the oldest, those things, you would probably see that you know there's more witnesses with the Trinitarian formula than without it. Uh-huh. But if you're looking at the Hebraic context and you're looking at the foundation to hear as people heard, well, uh, obviously to me, you know that that would be the the better reading so that you would hear it like the disciples said. Now, having said that, I'm not trying to uh, undermine the doctrine of the church and the Trinity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think sometimes the way the doctrine in the church of the Trinity is taught, it becomes 
what was described as heretical, that is tritheism or yeah. patropassionism. Uh, on the other hand, the, the fact that the, there's the deity of, of the Messiah, you know, I think this is pretty strong in the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the word and, and other aspects of it. But I don't, to me, this seems to be more of a gloss in the, in the book of Acts also along this line. Um, how are people baptized in the book of Acts when there is the ritual immersion? And we, we translated it with the middle text that you immerse yourself with someone supervising it. Right. Uh, also kind of complicated, difficult for people to understand. But you know, many people understand uh, traditions of Jewish immersion. But they are baptized B'Shem Yeshua in the name yeah. of Yesh- Jesus. Yeah. So... Uh, again, there's another thing of having a Trinitarian formula that seems to be a later baptismal formula. Uh, so, you know, just in analyzing that evidence, I think, you know, we were trying to be very honest and and uh, give more information to the reader. So we give you both readings and we give the information in the footnotes and you can decide for yourself. You know, I'm, I'm not really trying to tell you what to think, but I'm trying to help you discover New information. That's it. And when we discover more more information about building disciples in the kingdom, well, to me that that's meaningful. Yeah, I love it. And we also see how this has impacted later understandings of Christ and the developments of the church. And all of that's important. Yeah, I'm not saying you've got to reject that. I'm just saying let's understand the text in the in the context. See, so yeah. And to me, this was very uh, challenging when I began studying and looking at the evidence. Yep. And I thought this would be meaningful to people to really understand how this develops and to see, you know, what's happening in the book of Acts, what's happening in the Gospel of Matthew, and what's happening in this idea of raising up disciples to proclaim the kingdom, to uh, give the message of Yeshua. So uh, thank you for bringing that up because I know that is probably going to be a struggle for some people who've never heard any of this before because uh, it's probably a discussion among some scholars. But the Nestle Allen text, you know, there's this idea that there's a neutral text. I mean, scholars don't want to use that term so much anymore, but there's the idea that the neutral text, it's a little bit more like Sinaiticus, but there, you know, there's no text like the Nestle Allen text. All of our New Testament texts are eclectic. I think eclectic meaning they chose different manuscripts from different texts. So, but, but I say it's a miracle of God that we have 6,000, almost 6,000 Greek manuscripts. Mm-hmm. And every one of them help us, and the critical editions help us. I love the Nestle Allen text because it gives us so much information. I love the the Tischendorf text, the eighth edition in particular, and uh, you know we've got some editions of the Bible Society that, or Legs edition that wants to give us all of the variant readings. You know we we want to study those to enrich our understanding, and when we understand the Jewish context, well, when we get back to those readings, it it really can help us see this Jewish world of master and disciple teaching, living this in practical life every day. So uh, to me, it's very exciting. But also, I know this is uh, controversial uh, because some people may, you know, you you shouldn't read into what I'm saying in the notes as, uh, you know, uh, attacking, you know, some aspects of the 
doctrine of the Trinity. You should see it in context, what we're seeing in the New Testament itself. I think, I think that's one of the things that I admire most about you as a, as a teacher, as a, as a trailblazer is listen, here, here are some options. I'm not going to beat you over the head with theological bias and translation, but listen, this is out there. You should know it. Here's here's some things to study. I appreciate you for doing that. I really do. And it is controversial. And that's why I had you explain it, not me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's uh, and it's not the only place. And it's, it, you know, th- our readers should know this is a, d- a dynamically equivalent translation, meaning it, it's not, the goal is not to rigidly, literally uh, translate the Greek words, like you said. The goal is to get our heads into that first century context. And so we do find differences from other translations. And one of the ones that popped out to me was in the Lord's Prayer. And this is this happens in the Beatitudes and other places as well. Um, anytime that the kingdom, the, the idea of the kingdom is brought up. But specifically in the Lord's Prayer, I've got Matthew's version here from, from the Newer Testament. You have, um, instead of your kingdom come, you have, may you continue establishing your kingdom, which is uh, the tense is, is just different enough to give the reader the idea that the kingdom is not a future event to look forward to, or at least not exclusively a future event to look forward to, but it is something that in some sense is here already. Um, where, but most I looked at every other translation actually that I could find, and they are all they're all future, which I think is again the the literal translation of the of the Greek text. I don't necessarily want to get into a deep eschatological discussion, but our position here at First Fruit Design is that all the Old Testament prophecies of this reestablishment of the kingdom of Israel, the Messiah taking the throne of David in Jerusalem, uh, are are should be taken literally, and that that will actually happen at some point. And um, we, pointing, we, we look at passages like Acts 1-6, where we see the apostles seem to expect this as well. And so we went back through some of your older work, and we found um, in uh, one of the oldest ones um, that the future monarchy interpretation of the kingdom, you said, was remote from Jesus' thought. And I think this was um, the Lord's Prayer book that you wrote a long time yeah. ago. And I was also reading in Jesus, the Jewish theologian, um, and the language he used was slightly different, which um, was that it wasn't only, Jesus wasn't only talking about a future eschatological event uh, when he talked about the kingdom. But when you're assessing John the Baptist's expectations of Jesus and why John the Baptist seemed like disappointed in Jesus, you, you uh, in Jesus, the Jewish theologian, you, you say that John was sort of mistaken about what Jesus had come to do. And so I just wanted to, to, to ask, because we are very much kingdom, future monarchy literalists. Um, do you think Jesus is, is going to come back and establish a kingdom? And, and if not, how is the redemption of the world going to play out? Yeah, I think the verse you referred to in the book of Acts, uh, you know, especially, will you at this time establish uh, the kingdom to Israel? I mean, uh, this seems very literal, and uh, the context is that the risen Yeshua has been teaching the disciples about the kingdom for, you know, they've been having this study, and so... uh, why would they ask a question that was completely wrong? And most commentaries, or, you know, you'll find some commentaries that will say, well, 
this shows you how they completely misunderstood it. But when you go to the book of Revelation, you know, when you follow carefully the defeat of evil and the establishment of the millennial reign as a, as a literal reality on earth, well, you know, I, I think that is uh, the approach that you've been taking at First Fruits of Zion. That's certainly, you know, a biblical perspective to have. And um, my uh, my translation of the Lord's Prayer is based a little bit more on a Hebrew reconstruction of what I think would be the undertext for the Greek. And uh, we, we have that a few times in the Newer Testament. Most of the time, we're not, uh, you know, we don't do that, but I, I generally have annotations in a reader's edition that explain, you know, some of the reasons we made this decision. Also, in the annotations, we explain quite a bit about some of these variant readings. But I think if you look at the word come, uh, in Hebrew, almost always you have the idea of malach, uh, to reign. Melech is the king, malach is reign. Then you know, when you're talking about a, a king reigning, you use the word, the, the malach in the he field, himlich. So I, I feel like I'm, I'm very confident in my mind that probably we have tamlich malchutcha as the Hebrew undertext, which was translated not quite as literally into uh, elthato, you know, let thy kingdom come. So uh, the idea of thy kingdom come puts the kingdom almost entirely in the future. Well, you know, there's a lot of reasons for people wanting to put the kingdom in the future. I mean, Rudolf Bultmann said the kingdom is all is entirely eschatologically. It comes from God alone. Man is not involved at all. Well, I don't believe Jesus would agree with that statement. But, you know, if you just live through Nazi Germany claiming that they're the Reich and we see uh, nationalism in certain areas or, or even church denominations. I mean, they want to say our church is the kingdom. Well, uh, you're trying to establish it through human effort. That's certainly wrong. But uh, I think when Jesus said the disciples would pray for healing or if you are putting yourself under God's authority to live your life pleasing to God, well, that that is participating in the kingdom. You can participate in God's kingdom by obeying the Lord. And this is, I think, very much a Jewish idea. I mean, when we look at brachot, if you recite the Shema as a prayer, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, they're acknowledging that He is God, there is no other, He is the sovereign, and you are in a sense, participating in the kingdom. They use the expression, you have received the kingdom. Think that after the high priest on the Day of Atonement would exit and utter the holiest name of God, in a whisper, people would say, Baruch Shem Kavod, Blessed is the name of his glory, his kingdom is forever and ever. The kingdom is something that can be right now and into the future. I like the way that... Uh, E. Stanley Jones says that you have to learn to, to live with the present and eternity simultaneously, in a sense, so that the, the, the kingdom for Yeshua was more of a present experience that goes into the future so that we should be, uh, you know, if I, by the finger of God, have forced out this demon set, 
the creation of God with purpose and meaning, free to follow the path, the, the spiritual journey that was ordained for this precious life and freedom from this uh, oppression of darkness. Well, the kingdom has already come upon you, he says. So, so uh, I think this is a better understanding of the kingdom than praying thy kingdom come with that sense temporally that it's only in the eschatological future. I, I think there is a human participation in it, but there's not an ownership of it. You know, there, you're, you don't own the kingdom, or, uh, but you see there's a movement, a kingdom movement. Uh, I don't know if that helps, Jacob, but uh, uh, and I, I think in our notes we explain a little bit more about that, but I think it would be better to understand the, the kingdom more as tamlich malchutcha, continue establishing your kingdom. I think that's the way the disciples were hearing it. And that's the way Yeshua taught it. And we see that connected with other parts of his teaching on the kingdom. So uh, I, I would probably yeah. that's one of the areas that I my books sometimes have been critiqued uh, that I see the the kingdom more as an existential reality in the present that goes on into the future. Certainly there is future aspects of it. But I feel like that Yeshua emphasized the uh existential reality in the present more than is allowed in most uh, studies and, and writings on the kingdom. So um, I disagree with that approach. I disagree with uh, George Eldon Ladd already, but not yet, or the realized eschatology that, or the eschatology of, of Joachim Jeremias, which is in the process of realization. It's always in the process, always in the distant future. I think Yeshua wanted us to feel experience god's reign in our presence in our in our present lives in our families uh, in our relationships especially in reconciliation with others and forgiveness and to love god with all your heart love your neighbor as yourself to see the kingdom experience now present kingdom realizations present kingdom realizations like that i mean so much of his teaching was telling us you need to live like the kingdom is here that's why that's why you love your neighbor that's why you do all the things he said on the sermon on the mount because this is a t a foretaste of the kingdom that that we're doing now but i am curious in the sense of i think we totally agree on that that our calling as disciples of yeshua is to is to be a picture of the present kingdom now and that Yeshua inaugurated in that sense. But one of our colleagues at First Fruits, one of our educators, Aaron Eby, he, he, I remember him giving a lecture one time and saying, listen, if this is the kingdom, I want my money back. <laughs> <laughs> in the sense that so much of the prophetic realizations that we, that we read about and believe in and hope for certainly cannot be yet. I mean, we're, we've got so many problems. So I was trying to clarify what you, you what you're saying you disagree already, but not yet. I think in some sense that is, that is, it's my thought. It's, it's to some degree part of First Roots of Zion, I know, and that we know we're supposed to be building it. It's not, it's not contingent solely on our ability, but are you saying there will not be a, a, messianic kingdom with Yeshua ruling and reigning from Jerusalem. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's what we see in uh, Revelation, uh, you know, clearly articulated and described, uh, okay. complete defeat of evil. 
Uh, I, I always say, though, when I'm talking about this, that I, you know, I kind of write my eschatology with a pencil, and I'm open to be surprised by Love God. I don't, I don't like the amillennial position where you're all the time, where you're just saying everything is symbolic. You know, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I was in a meeting recently with several religious leaders, interfaith dialogue, and you know, everybody there was saying Jerusalem is just some kind of symbolism. Even the rabbis, you know, and they got around to me. I was the last one. No, Jerusalem is a real place. You know, it's, it's real people. <laughs> Been there. And, right? uh, it's, you know, you shouldn't look at it just as some kind of symbol for the future. So, yeah. uh, you know, the book of Revelation describes a literal kingdom where Messiah reigns, uh, a last judgment. And I think it is apocalyptic literature. It's sure. uncovering what's hidden and showing the 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 battle between the darkness and the light and and I certainly agree that you know when we look at our present life um, you know we are struggling we don't always have answers to prayer and um, I know my wife and I we have a a child uh, Gail's boy he's forty six he's about fourteen mentally you know and mm. to me he's a walking miracle because of all the wonderful things that have happened to him but you know I think there there's a, you know, he's not going to be the president of the bank or, you know, <laughs> but, you know, God is working in his life and we see the kingdom's present in his life and we rejoice in that. But yeah. we know, you know, there's a, a future that's promised in scripture that goes way beyond what we can see or think. But I, I think Yeshua wanted us to feel a little bit uncomfortable with the sense that we're not being as close to the God or we're not experiencing everything as much as we should. So, Maybe there's that sense of seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness is a sense that draws us into the idea, well, you can experience the kingdom's presence in your life today. So uh, I'm trying to emphasize that because I, I hear that in Yeshua's voice, yeah. but I also understand especially that there's very many aspects that the sovereignty of God means he can say no. And, you know, uh, we, we are going to experience adversity in this life when we are seeking first the kingdom. And we see this in the experience of many great men and women who yeah, have sure. been leaders following the Lord. So that Thank doesn't mean we that. don't have adversity yeah. or difficulty now. Thank you for that mm. clarification and just letting us, letting us chew on that a little bit with you. That's it's, it is, as Jacob said, a big part of kind of what we, what we do and teach this, the greatness of the coming kingdom. Yeah. But well, I, thank you. I, I value your teaching, what your message. I, I love it. Thank you very much. Yeah. Well, and I, and I, I agree that it's easy. It's easy to get so focused on the kingdom that's coming that you forget that you're, that you're already a part of it. And I think that that, you know, it's important to remember. Um, yeah. I do want to look a little bit at the future because I, I snooped on your website a little bit. And you've got you've got some some plans, some some potential projects, some dreams, and it looks like one of them was to redo Strzok Bilibek, which is um, I think it's it's old enough to be in the public domain now. It's old enough to have grandchildren, great grandchildren. <laughs> For those of our readers who don't know what this is, it's it's a it's a it's a German commentary on the New Testament, but it's a commentary from the Talmud and Midrash. And I remember when I first heard of this thing, I was like, there's a commentary on the New Testament from the Talmud and Midrash? Why have I never heard of this? And then I was like, oh, I need to go learn German, um, you know, learn, learn Deutsch. Um, so, you know, I, 
I did a little bit, but I never got my German copy of Strock Willebeck because I got busy. But, you know, everyone everyone cites Strock Willebeck. It's got its own abbreviation in the SBL style guide, right? I mean, it's a, it's a big deal. But seeing that on your to-do list to do another one or to do a new one um, uh, got me thinking like, okay, so it's been like almost... Or how long has it been since since Paul and Palestinian Judaism, right? Since since everyone started looking at um, Jewish literature to try to illuminate the New Testament, and it stopped being a niche thing, and it just sort of broke the dam open. It seems like to me, looking back at the history, um, that was in like 1977. So it seems like someone should have done this by now. So I wanted to ask, um, you know, what what tell us about a little bit about your heart for a project like this? Why hasn't it been done yet? In what ways is the original work out of date? How can it be improved? And just sort of how would this project be helpful to anyone who wants to study the New Testament from a Jewish perspective? Oh, you're you're really stirring me up here on this because I feel like this is something that is uh, very very important and. Uh, I would say, you know, Professor Flusser, you know, he was working on it. In fact, uh, he, they had a project that were going to do this, and then the organizers changed the project. In fact, one time he said, uh, he, I won't go into all the details, but he was even thinking about consulting a lawyer because he felt like, you know, you've kind of lost the, the emphasis of what we really wanted to do. And uh, I feel like our study New Testament, for instance, is uh, kind of a start in this direction. And uh, probably the translation itself is something that kind of started with trying to, you know, get these Jewish sources, uh, study uh, the Jewish sources in connection to the New Testament. We've been feeling the need for a translation that would show the interconnection because, uh, you're always talking about some difficulty in translation instead of looking at the parallels and then showing the the uh, result of uh, how uh, J- Jewish thought and the teachings of Yeshua, the teachings of Paul, uh, you know, they're really in tandem. And you have to see, as we're saying, the faith of Jesus, the faith of the Jewish people of the time, how it's strengthening and enhancing our faith. But Strzok Billerbeck was done in 1916. Paul Billerbeck was a tremendous scholar, rabbinic scholar, and he uh, noticed the close connection between Talmudic teachings and the Newer Testament. Uh, that was my experience in Jerusalem. Uh, you know, I had degrees. I'd studied uh, Greek and Hebrew and you know, had a lot of uh, Bible, but uh, I was shocked when I got into Talmud classes and I wanted to, I did my doctorate in comparative religions. I, and I, all I wanted to do was study Judaism, really. I had to study a lot of other things, but no comparison. Uh, and sometimes I had to fight my advisors to make sure I could get the courses I wanted. David Flusser helped me when he was my advisor, you know, because we, we studied a lot together. We were very close, but, um, you know, you see these parallels. I mean, Jesus says, if you're angry with your brother, you're going to be held for the judgment. And, you know, we have a beautiful teaching, someone who embarrasses someone in public, it's as if they killed him, spilled their blood. You know, it's, and you see this ethical teachings. Uh, 
Shmuel Safrai believed that there was a stream of Jewish teachings, what we what he would like to call the Hasidim. These are the pious ones, not not the Hasidim that you know we talk about in later time, but you know they were connected more to prayer, to healing, to uh, spiritual development, and especially humility. Many things that you know Yeshua is emphasizing in the Gospels. Um, he felt like that this was the chug, the, the kind of the group, the the movement that Yeshua was connected with and interconnected with in his teachings. And some of the minor tractates of the Talmud, for instance, who uh, didn't make it into the Talmud, the Masechtot Tanot, but were kind of outside, but considered very important, that emphasize ethics and humility and uh, personal relationships, forgiveness, prayer. These were the foundations of this uh, movement within the Pharisaic Judaism. Well, I think those are some aspects of what we would see in Strzok-Billerbeck. Strzok-Billerbeck, I think because of its time and its place, probably shows some anti-Jewish sentiments that we find in a lot of these uh, types of works. But really, I think if the German higher academic uh, world had embraced the work of Strzok-Billerbeck or uh, other scholars like Paul Feebig who were working in this area that probably the Holocaust could never have happened. But uh, what I think we saw in Germany was, you know, kind of, uh, although they had really excellent uh, German scholarship that was working with some of the Jewish sources, they kind of departed from that. I remember when I was writing my doctorate, you know, you have this bibliography you're developing and there's all these wonderful rich works of articles and things. And you get to about 1938 and it's like the whole world disappears, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's terrible tragedy of the Shoah, the 6 million, we can't even imagine the children, the, the suffering and, you know, all of Europe being in this turmoil and really, uh, I mean, and I'm very concerned about our present situation today where we see a renewal of some of these old uh, Jewish hatreds that are baseless. And, you know, it's gaining a platform of respectability in our world today that you would think would be unthinkable after what happened in Nazi Europe. But these things can impact uh, biblical scholarship. So, um, I think what we said with Struck Billerbeck, while he collected a lot of materials, sometimes he places a text to explain one text where it might have explained something else in another place a little bit better. But it gives you the larger Jewish context. Um, uh, recently, they've uh, published in English now the the work of uh, Elijah Soloveitchik, who uh, in the end of the 19th century as an ultra-Orthodox uh, rabbinic leader, and he's connected to a very um, influential uh, rabbinic dynasty, the Soloveitchiks, Joseph, uh, related to Joseph Soloveitchik, of, uh, greatly esteemed today by modern Orthodox leaders, uh, very important. But Elijah at that time wrote a commentary on the New Testament using Jewish sources. Oh, and he wow. was hoping that it would create a better relationship between Christians and Jews. Of course, this is before the Shoah, but there was persecution of the Jewish community. And I think his work uh, kind of helped 
you know, push the way along to what we find with Billerbeck. So this commentary you know, has page after page for the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I think it's connected to Paul. I believe it would really help us uh, in the work. When I did Paul, the Jewish theologian, I felt like that um, there is a greater understanding now, especially after the work of E.P. Sanders, that we have to study Paul in comparison to Jewish thought. And I kind of thought that would be the trajectory in New Testament scholars. I was certainly wrong about that. I don't think that the trajectory in the Wissenschaft of uh, New Testament, the, the academic world has been really focused more on the Jewish roots. I thought that might be the case, at, you know, many years ago. But there is a, a very strong interest, and probably almost every Bible commentary and and study Bible are discussing those issues. But if we could uh, take this commentary, examine the sources. Add new sources, add sources from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, you know, we know a lot more about these Jewish uh, sources today. We have better manuscripts. Mm-hmm. We're using the Kaufman manuscript of the Mishnah. We've got better manuscripts of the Talmud. We have uh, more uh, sources. And I think this could be a joint effort for Jews, Jewish scholars and Christian scholars to work together, studying their text, uh, to share scholarship to clarify issues in the New Testament. I, I feel like our translation is a, a stepping stone that could you know, help in developing this and our study Bible will also help. But it's a big project and I haven't received a lot of uh, support on that, although there's several people, it's surprising, I could tell you several people, Jacob, that have said, this is something we wanna do and I have some volunteers that wanna help on it. So I think, uh, I don't think it's impossible, but uh, I think it's something that's certainly on my heart at this time. Thank you for bringing that up. Did you say the uh, Elijah Soloveitchik uh, commentary was translated into English? Did I hear you say that? Yes, yes. And it, is it available? Uh, I mean, yes, it's available, and it has a very good um, uh, commentary showing the background. It has a foreword by the president of Yale University, who's a distant relative. Interesting. <laughs> and wow. and uh, kind of puts it in the historical perspective. And uh, I know one thing we're, we're seeing in our study, and this was before I was reading uh, Soloveitchik's work, uh, now in the translation. I knew it in Hebrew mm-hmm. uh, many years ago. You know, it came out in a new edition, and uh, but... You know, it's very fascinating, very helpful. Uh, But uh, he was, uh, you know, showing this sense of the ethical monotheism. Mm. I think they even say, well, he's kind of like uh, showing us a version of Yeshua more like Maimonides. I mean, I I wouldn't say that, but, but I think this is one aspect of early New Testament teachings that we've kind of missed is the ethical monotheism Mm -hmm. that we have Mm -hmm. really book of james uh, sermon on the mount but certainly the apostle paul echoes that very strongly in in romans uh, that we are set free uh, through the power of the holy spirit to love god to love others to live this life that will bear testimony to salvation that comes through yeshua we need a six-hour podcast with you is that possible (laughs) 
Just kidding. <laughs> we'll, we'll have you back. I want to ask my last question, but I want to start with reading something uh, that it's back from 1995, Dr. Brad Young, Jesus, the Jewish theologian. At least that's the copy I have. And it's this little story that's in the preface, which you say, in an internationally recognized university, a world-renowned New Testament scholar remarked to his students, quote, the first thing you must do to be a good Christian is to kill the Jew inside of you, end quote. One of the students raised her hand to respond to his statement with a question. The learned professor listened as she asked him, do you mean Jesus? And you say, Dr. Young, his statement and her question must be taken seriously. You have taken it very seriously through your career. Um, and you go on in that, in Jesus and, Jew, and the Jewish, Jesus, the Jewish theologian, to say, um, Christian faith in Jesus sometimes has alienated Jesus from ancient Judaism and has exiled him from his people. Today, you say, in 1995, I sense a new openness and strong longing to learn from the teacher of Galilee. That was 27 years ago. Much has changed. I certainly wholeheartedly agree with the 1995 Brad Young. I think the statement is truer today than ever before uh, in the church and even in some sense in the synagogue. What do you say to that assessment? Thank you, Damien. I think there is a, a softening in this approach. Well, to be a good Christian, you have to kill the Jew inside of you. Uh -huh. I mean, it's kind of a radical um, approach, but it, he's just saying what many people believe. And now people are recognizing Jesus is Jewish. We, we need to get back to our Jewish roots. And many in the Jewish community are saying we need to reclaim the Jewish Jesus. He's a member of our family and uh, we want to study him. Uh, we don't believe in him as the Messiah in the same way that Christians believe in, in Yeshua, but there is something that is in his message, in his personality, uh, he is so important for us to learn from. Uh, so uh, I think we're seeing a new openness today, and I hope that the translation can mark a path to reread some of these texts. I know every time we read the scriptures, I don't know, some verse, maybe I've read it a hundred times, I read it, and it's like, I never read it before. There, there's something that yeah. flashes, there's something there. And I think when we're reading the Bible, sometimes we feel like, you know, I'm missing something. And certainly we are missing many times the Jewish roots. So a first century translation emphasis that focuses on the Jewish Jesus, the immutability of the Torah and the essence of Israel as a dynamic reality. Uh, these are aspects of the New Testament that will strengthen our faith in Jesus as we value the faith of Jesus. Thank you for that. Well, I think that's all of the formal questions we have for you today. But at the end of every podcast, we like to shoot a couple more questions at the guests that we don't give to them in advance. We ask that they answer off the top of their head and all we can promise is that the stakes are low so here's our rapid fire round for dr brad young here's what the people want to know if you had to pick the one scholar from the past let's say 300 years who has had the greatest impact as far as getting people to see jesus from a jewish perspective who would that be i think joseph klausner would uh, certainly right. be in that place. Uh, I remember doing a review of his work and 
the contributions, and if you would read some of the reviews of his books, especially in Hebrew and others. But I think Joseph Klausner really paved the way for a greater conversation in these areas. Yeah, good answer. Uh, next question. Do you think we're ever going to find a manuscript of this original, proposed original Hebrew biography of Jesus? It would not surprise me in the least. Uh, I feel like, you know, some of these scrolls were saved. They might be in Jordan in a cave someplace where we haven't explored it. Uh, it could be in the Vatican Library. But, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if we would find something uh, of this uh, Hebrew gospel. It would certainly help us because if we could have just a few sentences, uh, sentence, we could understand, is it biblical Hebrew? Is it Mishnaic Hebrew? We'd know a little bit more about the language and and it would help us. But I, w- I would say, Jacob, we have it. We have it in the Greek gospels. <laughs> you know, I we can reconstruct it. It's, it's right there. I see it every day when I read it, read the gospels in Greek. I see the Hebrew and I think we understand it better. So, uh, but we'd love to have it. And I think someday was, we, we could have it. It wouldn't surprise me at all. Good answer. All right. Let's say a uh, third question. If someone's driving through Tulsa and they have a couple hours to kill, what's the one thing in Tulsa they need to stop and take a look at or eat or go see? Well, you know, I do think the campus of Oral Roberts University with the prayer tower and the history is really wonderful. I think you can also get tours of the uh, downtown Tulsa, the beautiful architecture, the the churches, uh, the the Phillips Mansion, uh, the the oil connection. You know, there it was against the law to drill for oil in downtown Tulsa, but there's an oil well inside a building in the basement. You know, so <laughs> it's always interesting to see the history of. Oklahoma, it's a wonderful place. Tulsa is a great place to come and visit. Cool. All right. And I have to ask you this. What's your favorite variety of apple to dip in honey on Rosh Hashanah? Oh, yeah. Now, that's what you should be asking my wife. I like, uh, what is it? Delicious? What is it? The uh, Well, there's red delicious and there's golden delicious. Golden delicious. That's, golden that's delicious. the one I, I love. Yes, I like golden delicious apples. Those are really good. We want to have a sweet Shana Tava. Yes. Uh, yes. Sweet honey and apples. How can you go wrong? It's got delicious right in the name there. Yes, All sir. right. And uh, finally, where can people go to either stay in touch with you on social media or see and purchase your books? How can people keep in touch with Brad Young? Well, the, the Hebrew Heritage Bible Newer Testament is available on our website, HebrewHeritageBible.com. And so uh, we, we've maintained the copyright on the book by not giving it to a major publisher. This is the way the New American Standard Bible has been published. But you have to go to our website, HebrewHeritageBible.com. If you want to keep up with me, you can also go to BradYoung.org. We have a, a website that's talking a little bit more about what we're doing. Uh, we have a, a Facebook page and um, my incredibly awesome wife, Gail Young, also has a Facebook page. You can keep up with our family. Uh, we always love to connect with people, and uh, we appreciate everyone that's praying for us and studying and learning. Uh, we, we always get so blessed and excited when we learn something new about the Lord, about the, the founding of our faith, and the connections we have with the, 
Jewish people today. It's just wonderful. Amen. Well, I we had been looking forward to this for quite some time. Um, I'm glad we were able to record it living on Tulsa time. I just needed to. I, that's <laughs> one of the things I love to do while in Tulsa. Um, but I did not expect it to be. I knew it was going to be good. But I've learned a lot sitting here for the last bit of time, and I'm I, again even more thankful not only for your scholarship, not only for your dedication to this study, but for your incredible humility and genuineness. So I want to tell yeah, you absolutely. this has been a very memorable experience. I look forward to staying in touch with you, and I know that our our listeners have been blessed by having you join us here, Dr. Young. So thank you very much. Well, thank you so much. It's been great to see you face to face, and I hope we'll all be in Jerusalem having coffee. I mean, that'd be better than Tulsa. But if we can do it in Tulsa, let's do it. Okay. By the I want to do it by the oil derrick in the building when we have coffee in Tulsa. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so very much. Blessings to you and to your and may God guide you in all of the projects that you are yet to complete. Maybe may they be many. Thank you so much. God bless you. Keep fighting the good fight. I value what you're doing for the kingdom. Blessings to you. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Messiah Podcast, where Jesus is Jewish and that changes everything. This podcast is an extension of Messiah Magazine, available at messiahmagazine.org. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave a review along with a five-star rating wherever you're listening now. Today's podcast was hosted by myself, Jacob Franzak, along with Damian Eisner. Our executive producer is Boaz Michael, and the editor-in-chief is Daniel Lancaster. This episode was directed and edited by Jeremy Schoenwald. Original music was written and performed by Joshua Aaron. The show notes for Messiah Podcast were edited by Candy Bishop and are available at messiahpodcast.org. If you are interested in learning more about the Bible from a Messianic Jewish perspective, check out Torah Club, which is an international network of small study groups who meet weekly to study the Bible together from a Messianic Jewish perspective. To start a club or join a club, go to torahclub.org. Until next time, Shalom. Like the waters cover the sea Let his love cover you and me Like the waters cover the sea